The FDA wanted 55 years to release some of the Pfizer safety data. We've got our hands on some of it thanks to a FOIA release. Come on, let's go take a look at it. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here, and boy, we've got a really interesting episode for you here today. And we're going to be discussing the post-authorization safety data that Pfizer collected between December 1st of 2020 and February 28th of 2021. It's just a three-month window. It happens to be the first three months of the vaccine rollout. So very interesting data, perhaps most interesting because um, this had to be pried out by a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request. So let's go take a look at it very quickly. Um, I am going to do my level best to just stick to just what's in the report. No conclusions, no real big opinions about it. We're just going to let it speak for itself here. And then we're going to talk about that in the context of informed consent. So yes, this was a FOIA request. A judge said, yeah, you got to release this stuff. Um, and this came out and frankly, it should have come out earlier, but I got to tell you this before we go there. Uh, this is my website right here, peakprosperity.com. Please come on by. If you want to come on by and leave your email, that way we'll be able to reach you because this kind of fact-based reporting that I'm bringing you, let's just say it hasn't been all that popular with the censors here in the United States of late. So we take risks when we do this. If we want to be able to reach you, that's what you would do. You just put in a username, give us an email, and we'll be able to let you know when we're producing more content should anything happen across our other distribution channels like this one. If you do join as a member, hey, for less than a dollar a day, I will become your personal research assistant. And uh, that's what I do. I just make sense of the world. And if you don't have the time, I, had, I do have the time. So that's what I do as well. Most importantly, you could join our community. We got a lot of people there who uh, are no longer feeling quite as insane because we have each other. That is the prime value of becoming a member over at Peak Prosperity as far as I'm concerned. Although you do get a private researcher uh, you get to use. So let's go there. Let's start here. On Pfizer safety data, I'm calling it leaked because really it was wrestled out by a Freedom of Information Act request. The judge said you have to put it out. It got snuck out there. And by snuck out, I mean... Um, I couldn't find any reports of this in any mainstream news within about a week of it um, coming out. So I had to look through it all myself. And here's what we found. Get my drawing tool out. First up, this is the first page. Uh, this is cumulative analysis of post-authorization adverse event reports of this BNT162B2. This is received up through the 28th of February, 2021. I think it, this is a bad start for me because it, the front page says report prepared by Worldwide Safety at Pfizer. By the way, little known fact for some people, I did work at Pfizer for just under three years. I worked at the Groton facility, which is R&D, Research and Development, Groton, Connecticut. I was in corporate finance. Um, this was my first thing I did starting out after uh, business school. It felt like a good place to go. I worked there. Wasn't a good fit for me. I ended up leaving for other opportunities. Long story, here I am. At any rate, I think I understand corporate culture reasonably well. I won't profess to be an expert at their cor corporate culture, although I did work there for a few years. All right, with that out of the way, in yellow, quote, it says, the information contained in this document is proprietary and confidential. 
any disclosure, reproduction, distribution, or other dissemination of this information outside of Pfizer, its affiliates, its licensees, or regulatory agencies is strictly prohibited. Now, this is kind of weird because um, this is actually adverse event safety data. I didn't realize that safety data on an EUA product was subject to um, confidential or proprietary aspects. That was a, that's kind of news for me, but I, kind of a bad start because to me, this is the public's data. It really ought to be, uh, particularly under these particular circumstances. So that's maybe that's just boilerplate. Their lawyers say, hey, we put that on the front of everything, and whether it has any um, legal bearing or not, I don't know. But this is now public data, so it's out in the public. By the way, here's how it starts. Introduction uh, says here, quote, reference is made to the request for comments and advice submitted on the 4th of February 2021 regarding their proposal for the clinical and post-authorization safety data for what's called a BLA, which is a biologics license application, um, in, in yellow, quote, further reference is made to the agency's March 9th request of 2021 and response to this request, specifically following requests from the agency, in quotes, in italics, the agency, which is the FDA, said, hey, quote, monthly safety reports primarily focus on events that occurred during the reporting interval and include information not relevant to a BLA submission, such as line lists of adverse events by country. So it's just like, we had 352 adverse events in Belarus. Like, they're like, that's, this is, this is FDA regulatory speak for, yeah, that, that's not what we asked for. Come on. We all, we both know that's, that's not what we asked for. Um, in green, quote, we are most interested in a cumulative analysis of post-authorization safety data to support your future BLA submission. So they're like, if you want to get this thing continually re-rolling approved, because you have to update, update, update. An EUA is not a forever license. You have to keep updating because it's an emergency use authorization. So in green, the FDA is saying, if you want to keep that rolling, rolling, you're going to have to actually give us an analysis that fits what we asked for. Continuing in white down below, please submit an integrated analysis of your cumulative post-authorization safety data, including U.S. and foreign post-authorization experience in your next BLA. Please include a cumulative analysis of the important identified risks, important potential risks, and areas of important missing information. Whoops. Uh, They're asking, they're saying, what you've submitted to us so far, we're missing some important stuff. Please include it next time. They asked politely, by the way. I like how they did that. Um, in uh, in uh, that darker highlight down below, quote, this document provides an integrated analysis of the cumulative post-authorization safety data. This is Pfizer's words now, including U.S. and foreign post-authorization adverse event reports received through the 28th of February, 2021. So that's their response. They're like, they said, okay, this document provides what you're asking for. Does it? Let's go in there and look at this. By the way, uh, my view of this right at this point in time is kind of like the first report that came in was a hot mess. And the FDA said, geez, this is so bad. We, we're going to have to ask you to update this. And they'd already asked for that. Um, they received whatever they had received by February. And by March 9th, they were like, you need to do better. It's kind of like, you know, when you ask your kid to clean up the room, you're, this is a parent's analogy, right? You ask your kid to clean up the room and, uh, and then you come back like 20 minutes later and they say they did and it's everything's just shoved under the bed. 
Yeah, that's what this report is. This report is just everything sort of shoved under the bed. We deserve better. That's an opinion. Here's why. First up, methodology. They said, here's what it is. Pfizer is responsible for the management post-authorization safety data on behalf of this agreement that's in place. Um, And they say Pfizer's database contains cases of adverse events here reported spontaneously to Pfizer. Cases reported by health authorities, cases published in medical literature, cases from Pfizer-sponsored marketing programs, non-interventional studies, cases of serious adverse events reported from clinical studies, regardless of causality assessment. Um, What it means by spontaneously is Pfizer is not actively out there monitoring. They're not saying, we're going to do a sample of people who've received this and we're going to be following them, we're going to be following up, we're going to make phone calls, we're going to actually, you know, um, ask for their patient records. They're not doing this spontaneously means you give these injections and then people or healthcare providers report them. Now, that reporting, as we know, is fraught with all sorts of difficulties, including the fact that many of these things go unreported, underreported. Nobody quite knows if they're supposed to report them. Sometimes I've heard of providers thinking that they're supposed to report them. Other providers think the patients are supposed to report them, vice versa on the patient side. It's a little bit of a mess. So um, they say, quite rightly, the limitations of post-market adverse event reporting should be considered when interpreting these data. Uh, my interpretation is, this is translation is, hey, you know what, we didn't spend any time, you know, calling people or following up. So whatever spontaneously came out, that gives us a lot of limitations in the data, including these. The limitations of post-marketing adverse drug event reporting should be considered, including uh, reports are submitted voluntarily, uh, and the magnitude of underreporting is unknown. Harvard study says it's 100 to 1. Um, other studies think it's somewhere between 30 and 40 to 1. It's all over the map. We don't really know, but we know that it is underreported. We just don't know the magnitude. But for sure, anything you read is an summation of underreported numbers. That's part one. Um, some of the factors that may influence whether an event is reported include uh, length of time since marketing, since it went out to market, market share of the drug compared to the other ones out there, publicity about a drug or an adverse event. So if you talk about adverse events, more people tend to start reporting those. Seriousness of the reaction, regulatory actions, awareness by health professionals, all this. By the way, uh, this whole part of about how these things would be reported, that would be a proper regulatory function to the extent there's any confusion is on the health authorities for not properly communicating who should report what and when. Um, That part is very, very unclear in this uh, based on everybody I've talked to in the field. Um, Second bullet point, quote, because of many external factors influence whether or not an adverse event is reported, the spontaneous reporting system yields reporting proportions, not incidence rates. What that means is the proportion of people who chose to or somehow managed to get through and and report the adverse event, um, it doesn't tell you the incidence rate. So the incidence rate would be very important. This is what we would love to know. You give a million people this experimental drug, whatever that happens to be. In this case, we're talking about um, the mRNA vaccine. But you give whatever your substance is, and then you would like to know out of those million people, the incidence is what percent of them in each category at each age by gender are experiencing something. Then you know you would be able to um, actually provide real 
actionable information. So all they're saying here is, look, you know, a lot of external factors influence whether things get reported or not. By the way, this is across lots of different countries and all different countries have different reporting methods. And sometimes they call things different things and they have different codes and there's all kinds of um, uh, issues like that. All right. Uh, next, in some reports, clinical information such as medical history, validation of diagnosis, time from drug use to onset of illness, dose, use of concomitant drugs uh, is missing or incomplete. So who knows what the actual making cause and effect delineations is very difficult because you, if you don't gather the data or that data is missing, what can you say, right? And then finally, an accumulation of adverse event reports, AERs, does not necessarily indicate that a particular adverse event was caused by the drug. Rather, the event may be due to underlying disease or other factors such as past medical history or other medications. Collectively, this is one of these, right? So there are some limitations. So let's interpret all of this with those limitations in mind. Very long report. I read the whole thing, read it twice. Um, Here's the... Issues are immediately apparent, however, in table one. So they said there were roughly by this time around 29 million doses had been um, delivered in the United States. But this is a worldwide report. I don't honestly know by between December 1st and February 28th. I don't know how many doses had been given. So we don't have that information. But what we do have is that they said they recorded 42,000 in 86 of these spontaneously generated adverse events. So of those, first thing that pops out, females to males, 29,914. So 30,000 of these were females, 9,000 were men. Uh, Already, time out, we can say I have a safety signal here. For whatever reason, more females are reporting issues with this than males. And we'd want to understand that this report should have gone in despite the spontaneous nature of this and attempted to explain this disparity, there's no language to explain this except another shrug, which is kind of like, hey, we noticed more females than males. I noticed that too. Uh, there was no no attempt to understand why this disparity might have existed. Um, and as well, to show you the sloppiness of this data, there is no data on nearly 3,000 of these as to even gender. Like when you say, well, we can't really tell because you know there might be missing data. When you can't even define gender, you're missing some pretty basic data. So that's just, you know, first thing just on table one on gender. I think there's legitimate questions that that arise automatically. The second thing that shows up on table one is the age range 0.01 to 107 years, 0.01. That's a hundredth of a year. That's 3.56 days long. How did a 3.56 day old infant um, get exposed in this particular case? That, too, is left unsaid. Uh, I have to interpret and think it was maybe through breastfeeding, and they're calling that an event. But um, at any rate, uh, that that's probably the most likely uh, thing that we have there. Mean year, mean age, 50.9 years. Um, there's a bunch of under 17-year-olds in here. Uh, and this was, I don't believe it had been approved for under, I think this was 18 and up during this time period. So that's a little something there to discuss. Um, but you can see that there are a lot of adverse events here that are being reported in the 31 to 50 zone. That is where most, that's the median uh, in this example, um, is right in there in that, in that bracket. So the case outcomes uh, recovered and recovering out of these 42,000, there's 19,000 are recovered or recovering. Those are two separate terms to me, so I'm not sure why there's a 
blobbed into one. Recovering with sequelae, uh, that means they're recovering, but there was some sort of, an, there's, a, there's a residual thing. Like if you had myocarditis and you're recovering or you're recovered, but now you have persistent heart um, pain, you're recovered, but you have that sequelae. Um, so at any rate, uh, there's that. And uh, not recovered at the time of the report is 11,000 total. And by the way, unknown, 9,400 on the dot. I'm a huge fan of not round numbers. I don't like round numbers in reports like these. Um, if I was a, an investigator, I'd hone in on that one. Like, why 9,400 on the dot? Um, that's kind of a weird thing, but it could be innocent, but it's how my mind rolls. All right. Uh, then they had figure one, which is pretty interesting. So in light blue is non-serious, and uh, this purple is serious. So they're here they have general disorders. They had... Over 20,000 of these were uh, serious adverse events. And there's a classification system for non-serious versus serious. They're graded. The We see here that there were um, quite a few, maybe around 13,000 in nervous system disorders here. We see musculoskeletal here, gastrointestinal here. We've got respiratory um skin issues people some people had uh, rashes that were quite extreme um lymphonod lymph lymph um what does that say lymphodural is that what they're calling that complications uh all kinds of stuff on down what's interesting here though is what's missing i don't see any reproductive issues down here because we do know that a lot of women report um uh alterations to their menstrual cycles uh, either stopping, starting, heavier flows, clotting, all kinds of issues around that. It's interesting that it doesn't show up as a classification because it's a pretty common um, uh, reported thing. So that's a missing element from this particular adverse event uh, monitoring system. It missed that somehow. Don't know how that happened. So at any rate, we can see there's actually you know many, many thousands of things. You would think, what I would think, if you said within the first three months, of which we're really ramping up, when you have this many adverse events, this many serious adverse events, to me, that's a safety signal. And you say, wow, we, we should look into that, see if we can understand this. So let's break it down a little bit. And we'll talk about this uh, again with this female to male breakdown a little bit, where I think maybe there, there's room to have more curiosity and inquiry about this. So now right here, we're looking at just this concept of anaphylaxis, which is a profound immunological response which is very dangerous. So if somebody has a peanut allergy, they get exposed to peanuts, their throat starts closing down. You get the EpiPen, goes into the thigh, and you treat their anaphylactic reaction. What's interesting is um, in this scoring system, this is the highest, most dangerous form of it, the BC1, the Brighton Collaboration Level 1. 290 cases had been reported um, throughout the world at this point in time. There were 1,833 total cases. Uh, BC5 is the lowest level. It's really not 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 that serious of a of a thing out of these there were a thousand and two cases um i can't match these numbers up so this is again a problem if i was a regulator i'd kick it back i'm like wait where'd the 2958 come from i, I couldn't make sense of these numbers um because they don't line up these there ought to be some relationship here they don't explain why they're different um so i squinted at it hard didn't resolve it maybe somebody else can figure this out but again, look what we're seeing down here under gender. Females, 876. Males, 106. Again, 20 unknown. Um, there were nine fatal cases that showed up here. And um, 
there were very many serious cases in here as well. Uh, so when we looked at this spread out all across the world, so to me, you know, there's obviously we knew that there was some issue with anaphylaxis that some people, for whatever reason, would go into anaphylactic um, shock and or have a reaction in, in a gradation from very serious down to not all that serious. However, we should note that for countries that are imposing very, very strict requirements for vaccine passports, and also not allowing any medical waivers or exemptions, anybody who fell on this list who had a serious reaction shouldn't be getting future shots. We know that CDC says so. There ought to be an instant, immediate, obvious medical exemption for people who fell anywhere on this list. Uh, and I'm, and I'm going to bet that there are a lot of people who weren't on this list uh, because of the level of, of anaphylaxis that we saw when we looked at there was a hospital system we reported on many, many months ago. They recorded a much higher incidence rate than this uh, is reporting right here. So, again, we see nine fatal cases, though. And what's interesting about this, um, when we go on, I'll, I'll show you how that how that sort of uh, tacks in earlier to the timing of all of this. So these anaphylactic reactions show up very, very, very quickly. These things would generally onset within minutes, at most hours guaranteed within 24 hours. So when we say that there's nine fatal cases, those had to have happened within a very, very short time frame where it would be very easy to assign that to uh, receiving the jab. And we don't know were these first vaccinations, second vaccinations. We don't know anything. None of that's provided in this report at this stage. So it's, like I said, it's just toys pushed under the bed as far as I can tell. Here, uh, looking at safety for pregnancy. So this is a description of missing information. This is a classification where the FDA came back and said, you're missing some stuff. So they had to go back and they looked in it. Uh, And so what we found here was post-authorization case evaluation. Again, these are partial cases. We don't know if this is the complete set, but we know it's some subset of what would we consider the complete case. Number of cases, they had 413 that they looked at. 84 were considered serious. 329 were considered non-serious. Out of these 270 mother cases and four fetus baby cases representing 270 unique uh, pregnancies, they did see here spontaneous abortion in 23 of those cases. Um, Outcome is, (coughs) excuse me, is pending in five cases. Premature birth with neonatal death, spontaneous abortion with intrauterine death, two each, uh, and spontaneous abortion with neonatal death, one each. So what do they say about this? Fundamentally, once uh, this data had been analyzed, they said the conclusion of this section was there were no safety signals that emerged in the review of these cases in the use of pregnancy and while breastfeeding. So the conclusion was, hey, we saw this. There's some of these events that happened. The conclusion was that these actually, there's no safety signal here. So A, cause and effect, very, very difficult to determine. But B, they're just making an assertion here. I'm calling this a data-free assertion because a data-rich assertion would be, would be to say, within the number of people within this population, we would have expected this many, and the number that we observed wasn't above the expected number because things go wrong in pregnancy, right? Sometimes spontaneous abortions happen, stillbirths happen. Uh, there are mutagenic effects that happen, they happen, right? So the question is, did more happen than you expected? We have no way of assessing that because of the limitations of these particular studies. But I would tell you that from my perspective, there's no way you can make that conclusion 
All you can say is we lack the ability to make any particular conclusion about this because of the way the data was collected, in which case the regulators would either go, okay, or they would say, we need to do better than that. Let's, let's protect these people and, and the unborn, so let's go forward and gather that data. But this is just what was presented and accepted. And by the way, again, as a reminder, we only know this because of a Freedom of Information Act request that wrestled this out of the FDA's hands. All right, uh, children, there was off-label use that happened here. There were a number of cases of serious adverse events, but what we don't know, they tell us, helpfully, here's our number, 0.1% of the total data set of these adverse events that came in. So it was a smallish number, but we did have 34 cases of individuals under the age of 12 who had received this shot. They shouldn't have. There was no, this is very off-label at this point in time. We don't know how many children actually received the shot, how many children under the age of 12. And they would have received, in this case, I presume, the full adult dose, which is the 0.3 mils, which is 30 micrograms of the mRNA. We don't know what the total number was that received. So if, if a million children under the age of 12 received that and there were only 34 total cases reported and that was the total universe, we could say, okay, it's not great, but you know, we know what the incidence is. Again, we don't know anything about the incidence in this, except that again, even though this was an inadvertent or off-label or illegal off-label use within children, uh, gender split again, more females than males by a very, very wide margin. We're checking in here. The ages range from two months uh, to nine years. So these weren't just children under the age of 12. These are children under the age of 10. Uh, as it turned out, the mean was 3.7 years. The median was four point. Zero. So these are very young children who ended up with this. By the way, of the 132 reported events, uh, so here we have to understand they had 34 cases, but a reported event is each case might have several reported events. So a child in this case might have reported fever, not feeling well, plus some other thing. They might have reported several. So for sure we know that on average, dividing 34 into 132, each of the cases here was was putting out at least four uh, reported events for each one of these. So when a child got this and they presented with symptoms, they had multiple different symptoms, which could have included um, parexia here, product use issues, fatigue, headache, nausea, vaccination site pain, abdominal pain, upper, COVID-19 they checked in with, facial paralysis, um, lymphadenopathy, malaise, pruritus, and swelling. So again, the conclusion is no new significant safety information was identified based on review of these cases compared with the non-pediatric population. Not sure how you can make that claim until we know how many and what the incidence was. So I'm not sure how you put that phrase out, no new significant safety information. I'm not sure how you can make that claim here. It feels like a, an assertion. I understand why you would want to make it, but I think it's up to regulators to say, is that sufficient? Can you make that claim or not? Here are some heart issues that were known by February 28th, 2021. Again, very strong gender breakdown here. More females than males. We'd want to know about that. By the way, this doesn't include pericarditis, myocarditis, those are considered immune system dysregulations. Itis means an, an inflammation. So inflammation is always mediated by the immune system. These are just 
heart issues. So that includes things like uh, infarction, which is a, a blockage of the heart leading to heart uh, death in heart tissue death, arrhythmia, cardiac failure, things like that. Um, so what did they find here? Well, the reported events here were most commonly tachycardia, speeding up of the heart rate, arrhythmias where your heart's not beating appropriately, myocardial infarction, cardiac failure, acute myocardial infarction, etc. The critical bit here is in yellow all the way at the bottom, relevant event onset latency. So how long between the shot and the onset range from under 24 hours to 21 days. So hard to say out at 21 days, hard to put cause and effect, but the median was less than 24 hours less than 24 hours. So then when we combine that under 24 hours with another table they had a little bit further down, they said relevant event outcome, there were 136 fatalities. Most of those, I'm guessing because we don't have the data, were reported in less than 24 hours post-shot. This to me seems like a uh, an interesting potential safety issue. We would need again to know of the number of people getting shots out of many, many millions, some percent of them are going to have some sort of a heart issue within that first 24-hour period. A quality study says, how many? And would we expect more or less than 136? The conclusion, though, was just, eh, cumulative case review does not raise any new safety issues. Guess what? No new safety issues were found anywhere in the study. There wasn't one single thing that jumped out at them where they said, hmm, we should know about this. Now, we do know that myocarditis has now emerged as something where they go, hey, that's a legit thing. You, what you would want, though, is you would want that signal to emerge from your safety data post-authorization, right? Because we couldn't do all the comprehensive year, many year-long studies. So EUA comes out, goes out into the population. What you want is an active, aggressive pharmacovigilance surveillance program where you're asking the question, is anything popping out here? We didn't have time to run it. It was such an emergency. We couldn't do it properly over here. Now that it's out here, what we really want to do is a very proper surveillance program where we know, is there an issue? This is the first three months. This is a critical window where you would want to say, what's going on? What do we know? All right. So on that front, as we continue down, and by the way, to me, this idea that there were 136 people, most of whom were women, who had a fatal outcome in less than 24 hours after one or or after the first or second vaccine, we would say we would want to make sense of that in some way. We would want to understand that. The conclusion is doesn't raise any new safety issues for us. There's nothing, nothing to look at here. We're not looking into it. We're not being proactive. We're just going to wait for more uh, surveillance data to come in. This is something that we talked about in a recent interview I did with Matthias Desmond about there were several conditions that need to exist in order for sort of a, a mass formation event or what's called mass psychosis to arise. Condition number two is that loss of sense making. We want to be able to make sense of things. We want data to make sense. We want our conclusions to make sense. We want our regulatory authorities to make sense. We would like that to make sense. This, I'm not sure how you can make these statements here. And to me, that contributes to that sense of a loss of sense-making in this particular story. Okay, immune-mediated. Now we finally do get down to places where you might have heard about things, which includes things that would um, be reported as an immune disorder, but it includes pericarditis here and myocarditis here. So the subjects, again, 
Interestingly, I don't understand this. More females than males are showing up, but again, this is immune mediated. So pericarditis and myocarditis are one of many different things, which could include hypersensitivity, neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy orders, dermatitis, diabetes, encephalitis, psoriasis. There's a lot of things in this bucket. Again, more females than males by a four to one proportion are checking in with a reported, spontaneously reported adverse event. And the age groups here are totally unhelpful. Age groups are adult, elderly, and adolescent. I don't know what to make of that. Um, that's, those aren't reasonable age groups. Of course, what would you want? You'd want this broken down by 10-year groupings at most. Five-year would be even better uh, because there a lot of things happen between 10 and 15 and 15 and 20. There's a lot that happens there in those five-year brackets. All right. The relevant onset and latency, again, median was less than 24 hours. That's pretty solid for me to, to, experiment, to determine cause and effect when you have something that's less than, than 24 hours. And as well, we had 12 fatalities in here with the median, I assume, I'm not sure how long the fatalities, I don't know if those happened within six months or within that three-month window, or we don't know. We don't have that data. But understanding that the median, meaning... More than half of these half of these things happened less than 24 hours. 12 fatalities, I'm not sure how you make this conclusion, which is does not raise any new safety issues. Surveillance will continue. Again, just that standard conclusion. We don't have enough data here for me to be able to assess this to say that's a legitimate conclusion. There might be, in the 55 years data, there might be, I'm assuming, big, huge data sets of tables of stuff back here where we could actually go back and understand if that conclusion is appropriate. We just have to trust that the people making that conclusion were considering the totality of the data. So now we get down to the, the heart of this, which is if you are considering or have considered or you've already taken the vaccine, you want to understand what your informed consent really is. The American Medical Association is very clear on what this is. This is a very clearly understood thing. It comes to us as a matter of ethics, of course. And the Code of Medical Ethics is uh, includes this idea that informed consent to medical treatment is fundamental to both ethics and law. There's a lot of law about this. These aren't sort of rules. These aren't guidelines. This is law. And Particularly, patients have the right, it's not a privilege, it's not um, a, a nice to have that if you ask politely, you get it. This is a right. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so they can make well-considered decisions about care. Continuing further, uh, the F, the, well, let me... Here it is. Yeah, the deets. What are the deets? What are the details from the AMA? In yellow, quote, the process of informed consent occurs when communication between a patient and a physician results in the patient's authorization or agreement to undergo a specific medical intervention. All right, so physicians should, A, they have to assess the patient's ability to understand what they're saying. All right, that, that's cool. B, present relevant information accurately and sensitively and the physicians should include information about, in yellow three down there, the burdens, the risks, and the expected benefits of all the options. So options include not having a treatment, having a different treatment, all sorts of things. But you should be able to articulate the burdens and the risks and the benefits. So what are those three things? In order to understand the risks, you have to have actual data around that. 
And that's what we're not seeing so far in this um, early surveillance data. And hopefully there's better data out there. But as of the time uh, by February 28th, when this report was uh, generated and then the FDA got their hands on it, we didn't know much about it. But let's imagine that we've, we've learned more. The post-marketing experience as of today, which is as of 12-7, when I pulled this report together, I went to the provider's labeling to look at what's in there right now because maybe this stuff all got wrapped in. This is 100% of everything that we just reviewed in that report from the post-marketing experience, the post-authorization experience. 100% of what's in that has is this is what's now out there if you went to provider labeling. You're a doctor. You're a physician's assistant. You're a nurse or somebody who's providing one of these vaccines and you open up this, this label and you read it. Here's what it says. Post-marketing experience. The following adverse reactions have been identified during post-marketing use of Comirnaty, which is the branded name for the uh, original Pfizer vaccine, including under EUA, because these reactions are reported voluntarily from a population of uncertain size, it's not always possible to reliably estimate their frequency. In fact, it's impossible. Or establish a causal relationship. Very difficult, gathered this way, of course. And here are the things that you might find. Cardiac disorders, uh, such as myocarditis, pericarditis, gastrointestinal orders, diarrhea, vomiting, immune system disorders, musculoskeletal and connective tissue disorders, pain in extremity, such as the arm. What I don't see in here, there's no number. So I'm a provider and somebody says, Doc, give me the risks. What are they? And I'll go, uh, there's some unknown, undefined risk of these things. There's no numbers here. This is it. And by the way, I didn't cut and paste. This is 100% of what's included from post-marketing. Everything we've learned about these things from post-marketing experience is in this clip you see right here. That's, that's all of it, 100%. So in terms of informed consent, though, I'm not clear how you go about doing this uh, in and assessing this when you're saying here that it's up to the doctor or provider to assess the burden, the risks, the expected benefits. There's no, you need data for that. I'm a little unclear what we do without, without data in this point. So anyway, that makes it a little bit difficult. So by the way, as we continue down further, if we go here to this web address right here, this is the latest that we have as well in terms of informed consent. So you're you're interested, you want to go, you want to find out about this FDA approved, they say here, important safety information. What is it? So you should not get these vaccines if, of course, if you've had a severe allergic reaction after a previous dose or have had a serious uh, allergic reaction to any ingredient in this vaccine. By the way, the ingredients are very hard to decipher. You'd have to be an organic chemist to even understand them. So it's unclear how you would know if you've had a reaction <coughs> to a couple of these things. But at any rate, um, and you should tell your vaccination provider about all medical conditions. If you've had any allergies, if you've ever had myocarditis, if you've had a fever, uh, on and on down this list. And so if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant or breastfeeding. So, this is part of the informed consent. What's missing here is any sense of the numbers, right? So there's nothing in here to suggest that, for instance, uh, how many people might have experienced a fairly serious adverse event 
such as this one. That's not in there. Um, so we don't, we don't, there's no sense of that. So to me, I'm not clear how we, how we're doing informed consent without numbers. I like my numbers. You know that. All right. Uh, so this is all sort of missing from this point. And well, how would we take it down a little bit further? So in this post-marketing experience, what's missing for me completely, there's, there's no numbers at all, none. There's no indication that the most serious things have an onset in under 24 hours. That would be important information, which is to say, of these things that might happen, you should really have a sharp eye out within that first 24-hour window. Because when things seem to go bad or they're very serious, they tend to happen really soon. They have a sudden onset. So there's nothing about the timing here. There's nothing about pregnancy or impact on women's menstrual cycles, zero. Uh, And there's nothing about the many deaths that were recorded, even if we don't know that those are directly causal, it's data. It probably ought to be in there and ought to be presented. So that's the kind of stuff that is missing from here. And I don't quite know what to do about that. Um, So it's, yeah, it's a pretty serious situation, I think, from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, I think we would want to understand this just a little bit better. Okay, so Uh, As well, if we wanted to understand what informed consent is just around pregnancy. So here's the part from if you went to the website, they would say, as a consumer, tell the vaccination provider about all medical conditions, including if you're pregnant or plan to become pregnant or are breastfeeding. So who is your vaccination provider? Sometimes this is just somebody at CVS or Walgreens or someplace like that, or it's just somebody at a big line. Maybe I've heard they do these at stadiums. I think you would have to inform them and say this. Um, And as well, when we look now all the way down in the piece here, which is in labeling, which is for the provider. So let's imagine your provider did read the entire label around this and they went to the part in pregnancy because you said, hey, I'm pregnant or planning to become pregnant. I would like to be informed. They go just a second. They open this thing up. They read it. They go down to Section 8.1. They open it up, and they find out that the conclusion is available data on comorbidity administered to pregnant women are insufficient to inform vaccine-associated risks in pregnancy. That's the state of the art. So in terms of informed consent, you read this thing. I'm supposed to tell my vaccination provider. I tell them. They open up all known medical information so far, and they read, oh, Pregnant women, we, we don't we have insufficient data to inform them one way or the other. That's all we know. Literally, that's all that's known. You can't know more than that at this point in time because that's what's on the label. The label contains all known information up to that point in time, and this is what's on there. So this is a, a very murky situation, and um, it's 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 it's. Uh, I'm just going to have to say that's the state of it right now that's just my fact about it it's this is the state of it so make of that what you will by the way uh in part two i am going to be talking more about some of this data i'm going to be talking about omicron what we know about it at this point in time is it a nothing burger is it a huge risk what what do we know about that and by the way this european energy crisis getting pretty extreme we got to talk about that and how it relates to omicron So to wrap up here today, conclusions for episode 38. First, the post-authorization safety data, it's impossible to decipher in any numerical way. There's no, there's no number. We don't know the incidents. We don't know how many people. It's very, it's a free floating sort of a, a data set. So we, it's, I can't make heads or tails out of it. I hope somebody behind the scenes has the full data sets. They are making really, uh, informed decisions about it. 
By the way, the lack of active surveillance, that seems to me like a, a, a huge oversight, something we could improve on. Uh, I don't believe the FDA should have agreed to just passive oversight. I think we should have had active surveillance, particularly in this particular situation. I think with any EUA drug, you'd want to have very, very active surveillance, which isn't just waiting for reports to coming in and then shrugging and saying, well, well, we can't tell anything from these. You should be actively, when a report comes in, seeking reports, monitoring for them when something happens, put your team in, run down there and figure out as much as you can from a causal standpoint, because that would be important information. So that's my views on that. Uh, informed consent, however, is not possible if you don't know actually what the risks are. A shrug is really not, you can't, that's not part of the informed consent process unless you're willing to say, um, well, you know, I guess it's just not possible for providers to know any of this either. So maybe they, you know, so they're really not in a position to do anything about this more than just shrug and say, I guess we'll just have to find out by doing this, right? Which, of course, famously, we just heard one of the people uh, say about the uh, vaccination in children said, listen, there's really no way to know what the risks are of any of this. I guess we'll just have to, you know, put it out into the population and find out. I think that's unacceptable. Personally, that's my personal view on that. I, we can do better than that, obviously. And there's a really puzzling lack of regulatory oversight going on here, speaking to an advanced case of what we might call regulatory capture. Whose interests are the regulation, regulation agencies working in? It's pretty clear. Um, they're not actively seeking this stuff out, that this had to be pried out by FOIA, that this information had to be pried out by FOIA, I think tells us a lot about the capture in this. And by the way, it's pretty systemic capture too, because you're not, you probably, for many of you, this is going to be the first time you've heard about this. This is a really important report. It says, what did we know in the first three months? And what did we do about it? And what we did about it was shrugged and said, I guess we'll just have to gather more data. But at this point, we still don't know more than we knew back then at least in terms of what we can find out from the label. And that's inappropriate at this point in time. That's my opinion on that. By the way, it doesn't have to be this way. Not only can we do better, we should do better. I think it's up to us to demand that we do better. I think we should ask for it. No, we should demand it. Like this really, like we deserve good, complete and open information. And so uh, this is a really powerful report and people should understand it. They should digest it. I may well get in social media trouble for even daring to bring this to you, but this is the data. This is the data that we have. This is the actual data of the situation with just a few comments I've thrown in there because I don't think it has to be this way. We can honestly uh, do better than this in terms of understanding things in, from a true rate of incidence. And we deserve to know because that's what informed consent is all about. It's understanding the risks and the benefits. And none of this is to say that we shouldn't do this or the risks have not been worth it. It's just to say that you should always have a full, complete understanding of the risks, of the benefits, of the burdens of any particular medical treatment. That's enshrined in laws. That's enshrined in codes of ethics. And those are our rights, not privileges, not things that temporarily get suspended because we're in an emergency. They are our patient rights. All right, that's all I have for you today. We'll see you next time.